welcome to American Catholic History, brought to you by the support of listeners like you. If you value this content, please become a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again to our supporters. Your support really, really means a lot to us and makes it possible for us to keep making these episodes. We really couldn't keep doing all this without you. Yes, thank you sincerely. And those of you who have considered becoming supporters, pull the trigger. Please join us. Find our support levels and the perks offered at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support, and then join us via Patreon or Locals. Also, thank you for the reviews you leave on Apple, especially those five-star ratings. They let Apple know that this is a great podcast and that more people should find it. Yes, indeed. So all that said, on with the show. Today, we're talking about Mother Catherine Spaulding, whom we're calling the Mother Seton of the West. And she really is in so many ways. But of course, when we say the West here, we mean early 19th century America. At that point, Louisville, Kentucky was the West, not, you know, Tucson, Arizona. Yes, Louisville was a frontier town in 1813, and central to Kentucky was where people moved to get away from the oppressive East Coast. Yes, and that was what Catherine Spaulding's parents did. And it was a good thing for thousands of children, homeless, and the elderly that they did so because it's where Catherine labored for 45 years. And as her legacy, the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth, which she helped to found, continue her work all around the world. Also, Louisville named her one of the 16 most influential people in Louisville and Jefferson County history, and they erected a statue of her outside the Cathedral of the Assumption in 2015. She was the only woman on that list of 16, and she is the only woman who has been honored with a public statue in the entire Commonwealth of Kentucky. Yeah, we saw that statue when we were in Louisville back in August of 2021. Seeing it and learning her story while in Kentucky on that pilgrimage more or less led to this episode. And we'll see that statue again next month when we're on pilgrimage again in Kentucky. It's going to be great. Yeah, and I can't wait. I agree. It's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about this largely unknown giant of American Catholicism who labored in relative obscurity west of the Appalachians. Sure. Catherine Spaulding was born in 1793 in Charles County, Maryland, which is just a little way south of Washington, D.C. Charles County was a very Catholic part of Maryland, and it's where the first Carmelites in the U.S. established their Carmel at Port Tobacco in 1790. That and other nearby sites are among the oldest Catholic sites in the U.S., dating back to the arrival of the Ark and the Dove in 1634. We have episodes on a number of these places and events, and we actually have a pilgrimage itinerary that goes around the region. It's really a wonderful place to visit. But anyhow, Catherine's Catholic parents were among those families who moved from this region to central Kentucky in the 1790s. The Spaldings moved later in the 1790s when they had a total of five children and Catherine was about three years old. Within two years of their arrival in Kentucky, their mother died. And then things get murky. The exact details aren't clear, but what is certain is that their father abandoned the family. Some sources say he remarried, others that he had fallen badly in debt and couldn't bear the burden of raising the children on his own. But regardless, at least Catherine and her sister Anne, and possibly all five Spalding children, sources aren't clear, became wards of her father's sister Elizabeth and her husband Thomas Elder. 
Now, the elders already had 10 children of their own, so talk about a full house. Yeah, seriously. And on a side note, the the name Elder actually rings another bell for me, and for good reason. It seems this Thomas Elder was originally from Tawnytown, Maryland, which is very near Emmitsburg. The name Elder is all over Emmitsburg, which was another place Catholics moved to to get away from the major cities. Due to the elders and other families, it was a Catholic enclave long before the likes of John Dubois, Simon Brute, Elizabeth Ann Seton, John Hughes, and Mount St. Mary's Seminary came along. So, at least through Thomas Elder, there is a connection between these two early American frontier Catholic enclaves. Sounds like uh, many more connections could be found. We'll have to keep that in mind when working on future episodes. Yeah, seriously. And there probably, there probably are lots. So, Catherine was raised among a gaggle of elder relatives, if you will, until she was 16. That year, through further family unpleasantness, she and her sister Anne became wards of one of her cousins, Clementina, and her husband, Richard Clark. Through all of this family trauma, she seemed to learn a few lessons. First, rely on God and trust his plan. He and he alone is always faithful. Second, care for others and never let anyone feel abandoned. Third, Hard work is essential, and it doesn't matter who gets the credit. She lived with the Clarks until 1813, when she moved out to join a new community of women that had just been established nearby. This new community was organized in 1812 by Father Jean-Baptiste David. Probably they say it Jean-Baptiste David, but... I can't. Right. With the Uh, French. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) David was a French immigrant priest, a Sulpician, and a collaborator with the Bishop of Bardstown, Benedict Joseph Flaget. Flaget, definitely not Flaget, had been named... had been named the first Bishop of Bardstown in 1808, and since he took possession of his diocese in 1810, he spent most of his time on horseback, traveling throughout his vast diocese. At the time, the Diocese of Bardstown covered all, or most, of what is now Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, plus a little bit of Missouri. Today, 44 dioceses cover the same territory. So you might say that Bishop Flaget was spread thin. And this meant two things. First, he relied on Father David to manage things back at the Chancery in Bardstown. And two, he needed others to take leading roles in things like education and care for orphans, the destitute, and the elderly. Well, in 1812, Father David did both and brought in helpers. Father David was based in what could be considered the first chancery and seminary building west of the Appalachians. It was a cabin on property willed to the church by Thomas Howard, a member of one of those original Catholic settler families that came from Maryland. Thomas Howard died in 1810, so the land passed to the church just when they needed it. I mean, I'm I'm sure they would have found other arrangements, but it was very convenient. Yeah, I'd say. And the cabin had been expanded by the Howards a few times, so it was able to serve as chancery and seminary. Yes, and it also served as the residence for Father David and for Bishop Flaget when he was in town. That was a busy place. Yes, seriously. In 1812, Bishop Flaget had a church built next to the cabin, and that church, St. Thomas, is the oldest still-standing church in what was the original Diocese of Bardstown. Incidentally, the cabin also is still standing, and we visit both while there on pilgrimage. In 1812, Father David called for young women from Catholic families to devote themselves to communal religious life. He and Bishop Flaget were seeking something like what was happening in Emmitsburg, Maryland at the time, where Mother Elizabeth Ann Seton had established her Sisters of Charity. 
Bishop Flaget wrote to Mother Seton, hoping she could send some sisters to train the women who would heed the call in Bardstown. But Mother Seton had to decline. She did not yet have any sisters to spare for such a task. She did, however, send to Bishop Flaget the copy of the Rule of St. Vincent de Paul, which he, Bishop Flaget, had given to her many years prior. Bishop Flaget passed it along to Father David, who used it to organize the new order. A log cabin on the grounds of St. Thomas was made available for the community, and Father David dubbed this cabin Nazareth. Hence, the sisters have been known from almost the beginning as the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth. Two women immediately accepted the call in 1812. And then in 1813, Catherine Spaulding was among four additional women who joined the group. Later that same year, Catherine Spaulding, all of 19 years old, was elected the first Mother Superior of the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth. Now, Father David remained the Superior General for many years, but Mother Spalding was so instrumental in the founding and so influential during those beginning years that she is considered a co-founder of the order with him. And as for who is the real builder of the order, there's no question. It's Mother Spalding. Father David was important in guiding the community, leading them spiritually, and being their voice to the hierarchy— but he didn't do the work of the order, bring in the orphans from the riverside, educate the children, or work in the infirmaries. Those were the sisters led by Mother Spalding. Plus, her leadership saw the community grow significantly. In 1814, they opened their first school for girls in a cabin built by the St. Thomas Seminarians. This school drew local girls and boarding students from far away, and his student body grew rapidly. In 1822, they moved to a new home on a farm purchased for them three miles north of Bardstown. This land they called Nazareth, and it remains their mother house to this day. Nazareth Academy gained a reputation as one of the finest schools for girls west of the Appalachians. In 1831, under Mother Spalding's leadership, they began educating girls in Louisville. This school, which they called Presentation Academy, was in the basement of what was then St. Louis Church on 5th Street. St. Louis would eventually become the Cathedral of the Assumption when Bishop Flaget moved the see from Bargetown to Louisville 10 years later in 1841. A few years later, Presentation Academy moved out of the basement and into dedicated classroom space in buildings nearby. Presentation Academy is still in operation today, more than 200 years later, making it the oldest continuously operating school in Kentucky. Also, during the late 1820s, the Sisters of Charity began taking in elderly and homeless, eventually building a home for them. And during a terrible outbreak of cholera in Louisville, the sisters did what might be expected. They nursed the sick, regardless of the risk to themselves. In 1829, Mother Spaulding, who, let's remember, was an orphan herself at a young age, found two children who had been abandoned on the wharf along the Ohio River. She brought them back to the sisters' home in Louisville. In short order, these two became many more, and the sisters organized the St. Vincent Orphanage. This incredible growth came because of Mother Spaulding's devotion to doing whatever was needed. She is regarded as the founder of all social services in Kentucky. And these services were badly needed. Immigrants were flooding into America, fleeing wars among Germanic principalities, plus oppression and famine in Ireland. During the 1830s and 1840s, Louisville took in hundreds of German and Irish immigrants daily. These families had great needs, and many of the vulnerable, children, the elderly, and ill, were left behind by family members who believed they could no longer care for them. 
Add to that disease that swept the town from time to time, plus the coming and going of riverboats, and you have a large number of children left behind, parentless. The human wreckage all over Louisville just pierced her to the heart, and she was devoted, as we said, to doing whatever was needed. Yes, and very often this meant begging for the means necessary to finance the various institutions and ministries. Mother Spalding was a shrewd woman of business and a tireless fundraiser. When she wasn't working actively in one of the many institutions, and she wasn't busy with administration of the order, she was often found in the wealthier parts of Louisville soliciting donations. But her favorite place to be was the orphanage. She called it the only place on earth to which my heart clings. She spent a few different stretches in charge of the orphanage, but was compelled to leave it in others' care more than once. One time, it was because she was elected Mother Superior and had to move back to the Mother House at Nazareth. On one of those occasions, when she had to leave, she wrote to another sister, Well, here I am seated at the old place writing your own dear self. But you know what it has cost me to be torn away, as it were, from my poor dear children who need someone to struggle for a living for them. May their Father in Heaven protect and provide for them as He has ever done. Our poor orphans had measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, and cholera at the same time. Several of them went to join the angels in heaven, and I trust to pray for those they left. The St. Vincent Orphanage took in hundreds of orphans in just a few years. Eventually, the infirmary which had opened in part of the orphanage had to be moved to its own building so the orphanage could accommodate the growing flock of children. Naturally, she had a tenderness for the orphans, and the orphans knew it. One girl who had grown up at the orphanage later in life wrote to Mother Spalding, Every look and word of kindness is treasured up, and least of all can I forget the one who watched so untiringly by my sickbed and rejoiced so truly when the danger was past and I was restored to life and health once more. Mother, do you recollect one evening when I was just recovering? You were alone in the infirmary with me, and throwing your arms around me, you suddenly knelt down beside me and kissed me? I have never forgotten it, for until then I thought you were cold, but after that I knew that you loved me. Her fellow sisters knew it too. They would say that every orphan in the city could claim Mother Spalding as their own mother. Almost certainly many people in Kentucky and elsewhere are only alive today because one or more of their ancestors was found by the Sisters of Charity and grew up in St. Vincent Orphanage. Mother Spalding also had a tender care for her sisters. She was elected Mother Superior multiple times between 1813 and her death in 1858. Her sisters recognized not only her excellence in leading the order, but also her tender care for each of them. Her letters to her sisters contain messages of how best to deal with their work as well as concern for their spiritual well-being. In a letter sent to the sisters working at the orphanage during one of those times when she was obliged to work elsewhere, she wrote, We are going on here with a very large building and the new church also and all getting on very well. I hope too, before very long, to begin a hospital for the service of the poor and suffering members of Christ. But dear sisters, what will all that profit us if we should neglect the spiritual building of our own perfection by a faithful observance of rules and the true spirit of religion? Poor human nature is so apt to let every little thing interfere with regular attendance at our religious exercises and other observances, whereas with a little management and forethought, we might nearly always be able to attend them. She was also a woman equipped to deal with the world 
and with her own religious superiors. At one point, she asked Father David if their habit could be altered to include a white cotton collar. She may have had aesthetic reasons for wanting this, or it may have been influenced by the typical habit of religious sisters in Europe. One practical reason was comfort. The rough spun cloth that their habits were made of rubbed uncomfortably against the skin of the neck. Father David agreed to the request, but Bishop Flaget, who was not in town when the matter was first discussed, was deeply concerned when he heard about it. He was concerned first that the matter was decided without consulting him, but also that such an alteration could be a sign that the sisters were becoming too comfortable with their successes. Such a caller, he feared, could allow the sisters to become vain or to seek other comforts that could undermine their religious conviction. Mother Spalding wrote a letter to Bishop Flaget in which, in terms of the most humble submissiveness, she assures him of her desire to be nothing but obedient. But in the same letter, she very gently pokes him for taking so long to get back to her with answers to her questions. Then, about 12 years later, Bishop Flaget decided he wished the sisters to wear a black cap rather than white. On that occasion, Mother Spalding wrote to the bishop, if you believe that Almighty God can be more glorified by our wearing a black cap instead of a white one, I hope you will do me the justice to believe that I attach no importance to these little articles of our clothes. May God's holy will be done, and may he in mercy grant me the grace to save my poor soul. It is my only aim. She desired the white collar, but didn't care about the color of their caps and in both cases expressed only a desire to be obedient to her superiors for the salvation of her soul and the glory of God. It's all deftly handled. Yes, it is. So the sisters were permitted to adopt the white collar, they switched to the black cap, and Bishop Flaget was well enough satisfied with their filial devotion. But only about a year after that issue of the black caps, Mother Spalding was not as willing to just let the bishop's proposed plans go unchallenged. Yet yeah, this was in 1841. Bishop Flaget thought that at this juncture, the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth should merge with the other Sisters of Charity, the ones over in Emmitsburg, Maryland. The Sisters in Emmitsburg were very well established at this point, and they were, of course, connected to the population centers in Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York. Such a merger would, in turn, plug the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth into those population centers, which could be a boon for a ministry of the sisters in the Kentucky frontier. Mother Spalding strongly opposed this merger. She didn't want to become a branch of an order based in Emmitsburg. She believed the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth could better serve their people by retaining local control. So she organized a petition among the sisters and sent it with all of their signatures to Bishop Flaget. Bishop Flaget acceded to their sentiment and the matter dropped. The order continued to grow under Mother Spalding's leadership. By the time she died in 1858, the order had more than 100 sisters in 16 convents, including a number outside of Kentucky. She had spent 45 years welcoming new sisters into the congregation, establishing new convents in other places, including other states, establishing schools, orphanages, homes for the homeless and infirm, and caring for others. It's, I mean, it's little wonder that she caught the pneumonia, which eventually killed her while caring for the sick. The amazing thing is that she hadn't caught such a fatal disease years prior. But such is the providence of God. Yes, Mother Spalding had lots of work that God gave her to do. She spent her life learning what that work was and doing it wholeheartedly. Sounds like a good plan for life. 
She finally died on March 20, 1858, at St. Vincent Orphanage, surrounded by her favorites, the orphans whom she loved so dearly. She was buried in the cemetery at the Mother House in Nazareth. By this point, Nazareth boasted a new, larger church and a school building, both of which were the results of Mother Spalding's tireless work. In 1910, the Sisters of Charity of Nazareth finally received formal approbation of the Holy See. At that point, the order maintained 17 academies and high schools. They taught about 15,000 students in parochial schools and cared for more than 5,000 sick in their hospitals and infirmaries. Today, the order is still based at Nazareth, Kentucky, but they maintain a presence in 19 other states as well as four other countries. And all because of the faith and dedication of Mother Spaulding. So hopefully you can see why we call her Mother Seton of the West. The parallels in their lives really are significant. They both had family tragedies before they founded religious communities. They both established their religious community according to the rule of St. Vincent de Paul. They both established schools for girls and took in orphans. Through their own work and the work of their communities, they both are responsible for thousands upon thousands of girls and boys being educated and cared for. They both were beloved of their communities and respected by their superiors. But one way they're different is longevity. Mother Seton died in 1821 when she was 46 years old. She had been a religious foundress for only 12 years and an educator for 16 years. Her order hadn't spread that far by the time of her death. Mother Spalding, on the other hand, died in 1858 at 64 years old with 45 years of religious life under her belt, and all of that spent teaching, building her order, and caring dearly for orphans and the sick. Yeah, and you know, Mother Spalding also reminds me of another canonized American woman, St. Francis Xavier Cabrini. Cabrini traveled all over the country and established convents, schools, and orphanages in many places. Well, Cabrini's work has spread further across the country. But she was operating between 1889 when she arrived in the U.S. and her death in 1917. A whole lot more of the land west of the Mississippi was properly part of the United States during her lifetime. Yeah, but there again, Cabrini was active for you know only 28 years, 1889 to 1917. I mean, they were 28 incredible years, and she is undoubtedly among the saints in heaven. But there again, Mother Spalding labored for the love of God and her neighbor for 45 years, and she's not even a servant of God. Yeah. That's really puzzling. And this is something we've said about a number of people we talked about on this podcast. We know that Mother Spalding would never make a fuss about whether or not she was canonized, but the church doesn't canonize people for their benefit there in heaven, whether they're canonized or not. Right. The church canonizes people for our benefit. And Mother Spalding certainly has some lessons to teach us about loving God and others above yourself and working hard for the kingdom of God. So, since Mother Spalding would never ask, maybe we should ask the Sisters of Nazareth when we're there next month. Yeah, maybe. But whatever the reason for the lack of cause being open for Mother Spalding, she is not wholly without recognition. As we said at the outset, in 2015, the city of Louisville unveiled a statue of her striding along Fifth Street outside the Cathedral of the Assumption, where she started the Providence School more than 200 years ago. Alongside her walks a girl whom Mother Spalding is guiding with a gentle hand, and a toddler boy with arm outstretched in a gesture of joy is cradled on her other hip. It's interesting to think that Mother Spalding may have done exactly that in that exact spot. So if you're ever in Louisville, whether on your own or with us on pilgrimage, 
take a moment to pause with Mother Spaulding and perhaps say a prayer to seek her intercession. This has been American Catholic History. If you enjoy American Catholic History, please become a supporter. We've got great perks for supporters. Get information on how to become a supporter and the perks at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Mother Catherine Spalding, and see about our pilgrimages. Find And also find other great stories from American Catholic History. We also love the great reviews our listeners leave. Those and the five-star ratings help others find us. You can also email us feedback, questions, tips for episode topics, and other comments at feedback at AmericanCatholicHistory.org. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash AmericanCatholicHistory, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, and follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, made possible by listeners like you. <laughs>